Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Roxy Manning to the show. Dr. Manning is a clinical psychologist and certified center for nonviolent communication trainer. She brings decades of service experience to her work, interrupting explicitly and implicitly oppressive attitudes and cultural norms. Dr. Manning has worked, consulted, and provided training across the U.S. with businesses, nonprofits, and government organizations wanting to move towards equitable and diverse workplace cultures as well as internationally in over 10 countries with individuals and groups committed to social change. She works as a psychologist in San Francisco and is author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy, and co-author with Sarah Payton of the companion text, The Anti-Racist Heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook. Today, we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, more about her practice, and more about the power of authentic dialogue. Dr. Manning, welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Bradley. And please call me Roxy. <laughs> that sounds good. Thank you, Roxy. And uh, as you probably know and are aware, our podcast briefly goes over your uh, academic and professional journey. So to start off, I'll ask you, tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate experiences. Where did you go to school, your major, that sort of thing? Sure. So I started out actually at Howard University, which is a historically black college in Washington, D.C. And after one year, I really struggled. I thought I was going to be a medical doctor. <laughs> Ever since I was seven, I kept saying, I'm going to be a doctor when I grow up. But when I got to Howard, I realized I hate chemistry. It was not for me. And so I was struggling there for a while. And my dad said, come back home, which was New York City. So I finished my undergraduate degree at City College of New York in New York City. And there I studied, I think I had five different majors before I realized psychology. Ah, this is something that I find really intriguing and interesting. And that matches what I thought was true of the field at the time which was, I hate sitting in a nine to five kind of setting. And so if I were a psychologist, I'd have lots of flexibility. And so you had many different majors, but was it just that introductory to psych class that sparked your interest in the field of psychology or what actually sparked your interest? Mm -hmm. I think it was a combination of intro to psych and then so, uh, intro to social psych, especially, because oh, I've okay. always been really interested in like systems and groups and how they work together. So Probably that was what got me really excited about it. Well, I noticed that you actually, let me share my screen for a second. You actually mm -hmm. received your uh, doctorate from Binghamton University, and you earned your PhD in clinical psychology. There are many schools in New York that offer graduate degrees in psychology. So tell us what drew you to Binghamton? <laughs> well, this is going to sound really sad. At the time, I was dating my high school sweetheart. <laughs> And he was getting his PhD in math at Binghamton. Mm -hmm. um, and he'd gone there undergrad, master's, and doctorate. And so I decided to move up there at the end of my fourth year in college. And when I did, I had a couple of classes left to take. So I took those classes in the psych department at Binghamton. Okay. And this was really important because 
one of the things we often don't talk about, and it's really relevant now with the Supreme Court decision, is the whole question about affirmative action. Mm-hmm. I came from an immigrant family. There was no way I was going to be able to pay for college. Uh, even college was hard, much less grad school. And that was one of the benefits of going to a community college. City college is a community college. It was affordable. Mm-hmm. I could pay for it out of pocket by working. When I was at Binghamton, I had a professor who taught three of my classes, Dr. Jane Connor. And she said, tell me more about you. Tell me more about your life. And this is something that very few professors had done, like taken an interest into me. So she learned that I had gone to Stuyvesant High School, which is a school for gifted kids in New York City. Um, I was a kind of student who was a really bad student. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was actually losing my hearing. So I wear a cochlear implant now. And so I hated going to class. (laughs) I would basically ignore everything in class or I would cut or I would sleep, but I would always be able to like answer things really quickly. I understood everything that I read. And so she decided to mentor me. And she's the person who said, what are you doing? What are you doing next after college? And I Mm -hmm. said, I think I'm going to get a job. And I got a job. I worked for three years as a prison guard and as a domestic violence counselor. And then it was the prison guard experience that made me realize I need to do more. I wanted to help people more than, you know, just kind of like warehousing them, right? And she said, apply to grad school. I'm going to walk you through this and I'm going to help you apply for the affirmative action scholarship. And she did. And that's Mm -hmm. why I chose Binghamton. It was literally the only school that I applied to. Oh, wow. What a story. And, and, you know, a lot of our audience members ask, well, how do you decide on which branch of psychology you're interested in? Do you select it ahead of time or does it kind of emerge for you based on your interests? So tell us what led you to the clinical branch of psychology? Mm-hmm. Well, I kind of knew ahead of time, especially because of the work I had done before going to grad school, um, working as a domestic violence counselor, that I really wanted to help people find a way to transform their lives. And so clinical just seemed like a really great match for what I did. Interestingly, Jane, who became my dissertation advisor, was not a clinical psychologist. And I think this is a little bit different than a lot of folks. She basically took me under her wing and got the clinical faculty to agree that she could mentor me and that we would do research that also um, matched some of my interests. I was interested in, again, how people deal with stigma, anything about groups. So with her, I did research on race. I did research on stigma. Um, My dissertation was on how people Um, helping people understand stress and different ways of coping with stress. So I was really interested in things that she as a social psychologist and a cognitive psychologist could really support me with. What advice would you give to aspiring psychology students who are just starting their academic journey? Mm -hmm. I think it's to really think outside of the box. You know, we all have an image of what a clinical psychologist is or what a psychologist is that we get from television, right? Lots like Frasier. I used to love that show. Not really what a psychologist is. (laughs) And so it's really go out there and interview people, research people. If you think you want to do clinical, it was really helpful that I had spent two years as a domestic violence counselor which was a lot of like listening to people, listening to people who were depressed, helping people find like their motivation to be able to create change. So get some of those hands-on experiences that will let you know that, yeah, this is really what I want to do for the next 50 years of my life. Can you think of any other experiences that uh, students could use or or take the opportunity to, um, you know, get involved labs, that sort of stuff during their education to help them determine, hey, is clinical psychology for me? And if it isn't, then great. I found that out. I can go do Mm -hmm. something else. 
Absolutely. Well, of course, I would say joining labs makes a lot of sense. And I did do some labs when I was an undergrad, right? So doing labs, and if you're interested, doing labs in a variety of fields within psychology, because like I said, I started off being really interested in um, social psychology, but then it became clear that I was actually interested in the individual people piece, right? Mm -hmm. So doing those kinds of labs are helpful. But a different advice that I would give folks is if you want, and again, I'm talking to your clinical psychology folks, um, get out there and get into the real world. I feel really scared as a psychologist when people who only have had one worldview, one way of thinking about the world, what their experiences are, are out there in the clinical field and have this idea that this is what everyone's experience is like. So go work in settings that are 180 degrees different from the ones that you grew up in, that you're familiar with, so that we can start to notice our stereotypes and our biases and challenge them and can be more welcoming and inclusive in the field. Well, you're, you're, you're speaking to the uh, choir, so to speak, and I look at your uh, background, and you were a lead trainer and organizer with New York Intensives for over 11 years. You also served as collaborative trainer and executive director of Bay Area Nonviolent Communication for over 14 years. You have mm -hmm. served as a clinical psychologist for the city and county of San Francisco Human Services Agency for almost nine years. And now you have had your own private practice for a number of years. At what point did you know that you wanted to open up your own business? And I say business because you do more than just psychological <laughs> services. You actually provide other services as well. So at what point did you know that you wanted to open your own uh, business, private practice, and then expand mm -hmm. that? Actually, pretty early on, I had children, and this is another thing that I think was a little bit different from my journey from a lot of my peers. I had my first child when I was in grad school. And oh. so, and actually, I'd love to talk a little bit about that. I had my first child in grad school. And so for the last year of grad school, my dissertation advisor, who really was quite amazing, gave me this little tiny room in the lab where I could put a a little playpen. And he oh, came wow. with me to campus like almost every day. And I was really aware that working a nine to five job would be really hard and didn't quite match with being the kind of parent I wanted to be. So I took some time off after I had my third child. I took some time off. I stayed home and I started doing a very small private practice. So that's when my private practice started. I could mm -hmm. see a few clients and still kind of keep my toes in the field while mm -hmm. still being there for my parents. And it was during that time that I learned about nonviolent communication. So I started doing a lot of training and education in that and started merging those two fields, um, kind of bringing all the things I knew from psychology with um, working with people individually with nonviolent communication and then working with organizations. I should uh, I should remember that you keep referencing it as non-von. I have it memorized as NVC, so I could say non-von. Uh, non-violent, non-violent. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, non-violent communication, and mm -hmm. so I I kind of uh, remembered it as NVC, and mm -hmm. so um, what I what I wanted to follow up on was. First of all, what a great guy to give you that space on campus Woman. to. Oh, okay. What a great advisor woman to give you that uh, space. Not many people would even think of doing something like that to help accommodate you. So that was, that's mm -hmm. great that you had that. Um, in your experience, what qualities or characteristics do you believe are the most important to run a successful private practice or business? Yeah. The things that I struggled with early on and that 
I think, point to those qualities were things like knowing my boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. So I remember early on, and this wasn't actually even in my private practice, but I like to tell the story because it's also part of this knowing my boundaries. Mm -hmm. I was on internship and I had been really mindful when I was applying for internship that I have an infant. I am not going to take one of those like 80 hour a week internships. So mm -hmm. I, every time I went on an interview, I would say, I'm really excited about your internship. I can only work 40 hours a week. I want to be super clear about that. And everyone mm -hmm. said, that's the kiss of death. You can't say that. Mm -hmm. I got ranked highly on all of the internships I was interested in. So I got my chosen spot. But when I got the internship and I got there, I started doing too much. It's like if a client said, you know, hey, I'd love to reschedule. Can I come at X, Y, or Z? I'd say yes. And there was one year, one day that a client who had missed multiple sessions called me and said, hey, could you meet me at 630? I'm supposed to leave at five. And I said, yes, did mm -hmm. not know my boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I'm at the office and she does not show and I'm angry. Oh. Mm -hmm. And I could feel like I was just so like angry. I could feel my blood pressure rising and I had an aneurysm in that moment. Oh no! And I actually had to, I had enough presence of mind to call downstairs and security came and got me and took me to the hospital. But it was just kind of like, this was the ultimate sign that if I don't set my own boundaries and what's truly working for me, it's, it's not sustainable on any level. And so that was the thing I had to learn. Well, that's a very teachable moment and, and to share. So thank you. I, I mentioned that you are certified. You are a certified center for nonviolent communication trainer. You integrated NBC into your psychotherapy practice uh, around 2003, and you've been offering classes and workshops in NBC since 2005. So tell us a little bit more about your practice and what a typical day looks like for you, considering all of the services that you provide. Ooh, that can be a little bit challenging, right? <laughs> so I, I'd say there are two typical days. There are the days when I go into the office for the city mm -hmm. and then the days that I don't. Mm -hmm. On the days that I go into the office for the city, I try to be very focused on, I've got this job, I need to go in and to... I'm still struggling with this. I'm not a paperwork kind of person, so I'm still coming up with my plans. So I generally, um, as a clinical psychologist doing assessments, I see one to two clients a day and my mm -hmm. interviews, my assessments can run to two to three hours. Mm -hmm. And so I schedule them generally at 9 a.m. and 1, 1 p.m. I come in early about 7.38, do all of my paperwork, get ready for my client, but then I try to write most of their report immediately after seeing them so mm -hmm. I don't have all of this paperwork hanging over my head. And I'll often work 10-hour days when I'm in the city just so I can get all of those reports, the bulk of them done um, while I'm there. On the non-clinical days, oh, it's a million different things. Um, sometimes I might be doing an organizational training. Sometimes I'm writing the book. <laughs> you know, like there was a lot of just like writing articles, writing the book, um, attending to like, oh my gosh, there's so much paperwork in having a business. And that's another piece of advice I would give people. Mm -hmm. You can, don't do it all yourself. Like I am not a bookkeeper. I am not a website designer. And I started off my practice doing all of those things. And, you know, we're all smart. If you're getting a doctorate, you're smart enough. You can figure it out. But I started to remind myself, I'm going to pay someone much less per hour to do these things for me than I would make if I were actually seeing a client or working with a client. So just yeah. stop doing it. And I had to learn how to let go of this sense of control. Like I needed to make everything perfect and just really trust the folks who were supporting me to take over some of those things. 
So a lot of my days are just either meeting with clients, especially organizational clients to figure out what do you need? How can I support you? Planning workshops, planning classes, and then delivering them. Well, you brought up something that I was going to ask about is running your own business, your private practice. And did you do everything yourself? And it sounds like you did everything yourself at the very beginning and slowly mm -hmm. or quickly realized that, hey, it makes more sense to have somebody come in and focus on that so I can focus on other things. And it makes more financial sense as well as just your own, you know, feeling yeah. overwhelmed, uh, it takes some of the burden off of your shoulders by doing that as well. So any other challenges uh, or advice that you can share with people who are considering opening up their own private practice? Yeah, I think there's always a challenge of like, how do I get people, right? How do people find out about me? How do they, they come to me? For me, I actually very rarely did any advertising. I don't even think I have a Psychology Today profile, for instance. Mm -hmm. One of the things that someone told me that was connected to my nonviolent communication practice and my psychology practice was to find your niche. You know, there are a million psychologists out there, but what makes you unique? And what I started to do was I'm doing NVC-infused psychology, clinical mm -hmm. psychology, right? So bringing in a lot of the concepts of NVC to support people. And that's what I was known for. Whenever somebody was looking for a psychologist who knew NVC, they came to me and those folks referred me to their friends. And mm -hmm. so I very quickly had more clients than I could see because I had this very specific niche that I was developing. And then I also broadened that to, I would also work organizationally with anyone who was interested in DEI work. And that's mm -hmm. pretty much my niche, like thinking about how do we attend to power and privilege using nonviolent communication and clinical and psychology concepts in organizational settings. Well, it sounds like you definitely found your niche and, and people uh, spread the news and, mm -hmm. and you've uh, found enough clients. Now, you mentioned earlier that a lot of your work is on assessment. Mm -hmm. And so tell, tell us a little bit more about that and, and who are your target audience or clients when you're doing those assessments. Well, the assessment work that I do is all for the city. So I don't okay. do private assessments. Okay. And so my clients there are all people who would qualify for social services, so very disenfranchised, um, poor, low income, often mentally ill, substance abusing. Okay. And we get a wide range of clients. It's actually like, if you're interested in clinical psychology, one of the things that appealed to me about this position is that I see people with disorders that you just never see in your typical private practice, right? Like I've mm -hmm. had a Munchausen diagnosis. I've had, or I've had um, lots of bipolar. I've had some dissociative things, like, like every single possible diagnosis I've had. And it's really, really fun. So it always keeps me on my toes. I'm always kind of going like, oh, I don't know that I've actually paid attention to that one since grad school. Let me go do some right. research, right? It's right. so, so fun. Well, it sounds like it. And, you know, I ask this of people who have their own private practice. If you were in therapy yourself, describe mm -hmm. your ideal therapist. I am in therapy myself. Okay. <laughs> so that's another <laughs> tip that I would give people. You know, psychologists heal yourself. We right. often don't do it. And I have to say that I went through a number of therapists before I found my ideal therapist. So this is a really great question. For me, I needed somebody who was aware of and really well-versed in understanding um, like race relations in the U.S. and how that impacted me. So somebody who understood the immigrant experience, I'm an immigrant, and all of the different ways that I silence myself. It's like I look 
on paper, like, oh my gosh, this person is so confident and is doing so many amazing things. But I was always beating myself up. I was always insecure. And everything felt like this really heavy, like, okay, just do it. You know, people are going to hate it, but just do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I would do it, but it was really hard. So I needed somebody who could help me work through um, some of those, those consequences of being a racialized person in the United States. I also needed somebody who was willing to call me out on things. Like I did not need a therapist who was kind of going to, I didn't need someone who would come in with like, here's the answer to everything. Cause I'm very resistant to being told what to do. Mm-hmm. But I also didn't need somebody who would just let me run the show. Cause I'm really good at doing that. Mm-hmm. And my therapist is this lovely balance of kind of listening to me and letting me um, say the things and then kind of saying, so what are you noticing about what you just did? Or like right. actually naming it. Like, did you notice that I asked you about this and you went on about this? And what does that mean to you, right? And also bringing in and trusting that I do have some knowledge myself and that if you ask me, I can actually apply mm-hmm. some of it to myself. So like that, it's a really lovely combination I have with my therapist. Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like you found the right therapist who can allow you to be uh, and have that freedom, but catch you every once in a while trying to sneak by and and not really address some of the issues that you may need to address. So that's great. Exactly. That's wonderful. And you had mentioned one thing. So that's a good transition. Uh, you are the author of How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, Embracing Our Full Humanity to Challenge White Supremacy. In the book, you lay out a framework, and I think it's actually based on uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's framework of the, uh, what is that called? Beloved Community. Beloved Community. So first off, tell us a little bit more about that framework, Beloved Community, and then we'll talk Mm -hmm. shortly about authentic dialogue. Sure. So for me, Beloved community was a really important way to start thinking about how we related together. And in in some ways, what my intention is, because there's lots and like there's psychology, there's sociology, there are lots of theories about creating change and creating social change. Mm -hmm. But we often don't think about what's our end game? What are we trying to achieve? And beloved community is this idea that we all, every single person in the world, regardless of our identity, need to thrive. We need a world where we can all thrive. And so many um, ways that we think about change involve elevating one group over another, right? Mm -hmm. So as a Black person myself, it's like, well, Black people have very much been subjugated in our society, so let's get them to the top. But we get a lot of resistance. It's like people like, well, I don't want to be at the bottom, right? Or people frame it as a this kind of like either or kind of game. Right. And beloved community says, what actually works best for me as a Black person is when everyone is thriving, when we're not playing this, it's either you or me kind of game, but we're doing something that makes it work for everyone, that I'm not dropping myself and I'm not dropping you either. Mm -hmm. And so kind of an analogy that I use that's a little bit related to psychology is when I'm working with um, families, it's like if you have a family member who's been doing a lot of really horrible things, My job is not to cancel that family member and say, you don't belong in this family anymore, but to say, how can we talk to that family member and say, what you're doing isn't working for us, that you need to show up differently for our whole family to thrive. And that's what I'm doing with Beloved Community. I'm finding the places where people are taking actions that are maybe prioritizing one group over another, that are not letting all of us thrive, bringing it to their attention, being fierce about bringing it to their attention, but then working together to understand why are you doing this thing? 
And how can you do something different that will work for you, but also will work for me? That's a very good summary. And, you know, when I first started looking at these books, I the, the immediate first thought that came to me was, it's all in how you approach and the words and the attitude you have when you open up this dialogue. And so mm -hmm. that leads me to when I looked up authentic dialogue and, mm -hmm. you know, for example, am, you should ask yourself three questions and I'm probably stealing your thunder here, but I loved, it. I loved reading this about authentic dialogue framework. You should ask yourself before you even start having this conversation, three important questions. Am I truly seeking dialogue? Why is this dialogue important to me? And what am I seeking from the other person? So at this point, I'll kind of turn it over to you and you can kind of elaborate on what is authentic dialogue and, and why is that so important? Why should we self-reflect before we enter into this conversation? Mm -hmm. So I love to start this conversation about what authentic dialogue is. We're mm -hmm. talking about the difference between conversation and dialogue. Okay. Because a lot of what happens nowadays are kind of conversations mm -hmm. <laughs> at best. And often it's just like, I'm going to rant and tell you about my opinion. Right. And that's it. Like, I'm mm -hmm. just sharing information with you. And I think of conversations as we're kind of sharing information. I might be wanting to let you know about my point of view, but that's it. When I think about dialogue, I'm thinking about I'm actually sharing honestly and vulnerably my experience, inviting you to share yours with the idea that we can be moved, we can be shifted by each other's experience. And this is huge. And so I like to start off with thinking about what is it that's important to me? Because if I'm going into that dialogue thinking I need to like convince you that you're wrong and I'm right. I'm not actually open to that exchange of information that could lead to shift. I've closed mm -hmm. myself off from the possibility of hearing something from you that can lead to greater understanding or softening of my heart. And so I want to make sure that I'm really in that um, mindset that what I'm trying to build is beloved community, not trying to win over you, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think that question is really important there's nothing wrong. And, you know, this is being real. We're human beings. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I've had so much pain, something horrendous has happened to me and I'm feeling a lot of pain and anger about it. And I'm not in a position where I'm really open to hearing what your experience is. Mm -hmm. And that's absolutely okay. If that's where you are, then one of the steps in this process is get some support, get some empathy, have somebody hear you fully about what your experience is. And then from that more grounded place, you might be ready for dialogue. So it's really about um, taking some of these early precursor steps that help us be ready for the true exchange of information that could make dialogue more, more, more productive. And I like that differentiation between conversation and dialogue. Uh, you, you have to stop and think about it. It's logical when you start thinking about it is, hey, I just want to share what I my experience was, what my thoughts and opinions are. And then you kind of step back and you you almost close up. Okay, mm -hmm. I did my role. That's all I needed to do. I'm I'm having a conversation with you, and uh, but what they don't realize is you also have to be open to them talking and sharing, and then bringing up some questions and and having that dialogue going back and forth. And it's not competitive. And the, I'm right. using my own words here, but it's not competitive. It's not one upsmanship. It mm -hmm. is truly, I truly want to understand your experience because it will help me to understand how I can help, um, you know, uh, you in my introduction, I, I mentioned something about you dismantling, you know, a lot of these or interrupting these explicitly and implicitly oppressive 
uh, attitudes and cultural norms and having that true, uh, having a true dialogue helps overcome that. So I love seeing this second companion text, the anti-racist heart, a self-compassion and activism handbook. Uh, that was co-authored with uh, Sarah Payton as well. And so I loved seeing that because I, in my heart of hearts, want to have these dialogue conversations, but I don't know how to start that without yeah. being threatening to that other group. And I would expand this not only to African-American, but any other uh, group out there try mm -hmm. to apply this. So do you have any uh, ways, uh, quick suggestions for people who truly do want to have a dialogue, but aren't equipped to do so and, and send that, that mm -hmm. message, that authentic message to anybody else who wants to engage in that dialogue. Any other suggestions for those kind of people? Yeah. So the first suggestion, and I'm going to talk to you as a white person okay. and then okay. invite our audience to extrapolate it to any privileged identity that they might have. Sure. So the first suggestion is always to recognize that what you're experiencing is just one slice of the world. Mm -hmm. So if someone is telling you like, hey, you know, Brad, what you just did didn't work for me, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, hey, hold on, but wait, you just didn't understand why I'm doing this. You just are not seeing me mm -hmm. to stop and say, huh, what am I not seeing about their experience? Mm -hmm. What about my identity is getting in the way of me understanding their experience? So mm -hmm. slow down and just really interrogate all of the different assumptions that you might be bringing that sometimes you're not even aware of, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the first one. Your worldview is not the only worldview. Mm -hmm. Another one is really understand the power of empathy. A lot of times people have this idea that I need to fix things, right? It's like something mm -hmm. has happened and I need to be the person to fix everything. And that's actually not what we're needing. When I've experienced harm, a lot of times what I'm wanting is to be heard and fully understood about the impact of that harm. There's a mm -hmm. kind of an aloneness and invisibility that happens that then leads me to create all these stories in my head, right? These are some mm -hmm. of the stories that clinical psychologists have to work with. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. It was something that was my fault or the world is not safe. So if I can actually understand and be received with empathy, and then if you can show up with vulnerability about what was going on with you, not mm -hmm. an excuse, but mm -hmm. a real understanding of what were the needs that were driving you to do this, I can start to shift some of those stories or maybe not even develop them in the first place. Mm -hmm. So being able to offer me empathy, non-defensively listen fully to my pain, and then to share your truth are really, really important steps. And that opens yourself up. It, it, it lets them know, hey, I am opening myself up, being vulnerable here, and I'm willing to do that because I want this dialogue to continue. Right. And part of the challenge with doing that, if I'm in the privileged position, is that I need to be able to be clear that I'm sharing my vulnerability, not so that you can take care of me and make me feel better, but mm -hmm. really as a gift to you. So I often talk about vulnerability as a gift. Mm -hmm. But if I can share the ways that I showed up in, like, I, I know that there are times when one of the ways that I am privileged is that I'm cisgender. Mm -hmm. And I've had some very dear folks who are supporting me who were transgender. And I kept misgendering them. Mm -hmm. And this was painful for them. Mm -hmm. I needed to find a way to understand why am I doing this? Like, what is making this so hard for me? Mm -hmm. And to share that with them so that it wasn't, I know that the story that they were developing is, you don't care enough about me and my experience to take this effort, right? Mm -hmm. That I just don't matter to you, which was 100% not the case. But there was clearly a block that was getting in the way of me remembering their pronouns. 
And so I needed to be able to talk about that. And some of it for me was just literally saying like, you know what? I'm recognizing that as a person with brain injury, the aneurysm that I had, that there's certain things that I don't track. And I'm always, unless I'm actually paying attention to like, like actually telling myself, look at this person and say their names, look at them, say their gen, then I lose it. And my mm-hmm. brain is not tracking and holding onto information as much. And I'm afraid to say that to you because I'm afraid of, of being seen as not perfect, you know, not, mm-hmm. not capable, not strong. And I'm wondering if I say that, and if I actually take the steps to say, I'm going to slow down when we're talking so I can make this mental association that will help me remember, even if it makes me feel awkward, if that is what I need to do. And hearing that, it's like, it's not that I'm not trying. It's that I was trying to cover up what felt like a vulnerability in myself, right? And they don't have to make me feel better. They don't have to do anything. It's just, and now that I've said that, I'm willing to to put myself in that vulnerable position and take these steps. And the downside of you trying to remember not only their name, but, you know, their preferences and, and their their title and what you want to use um, and what they prefer for uh, to be called, while you're focusing on that, you may be missing what they're talking about as well. And so there, it's a challenging, and, you know, and I, I sense that from you, you want to have everything perfect and you want to do everything the right, the right way, but you're challenging yourself to say their name and say what they want you uh, to to use. But at the same time, you're missing part of that conversation. So I can relate to that because I'm married to a Vietnamese woman. And so Mm -hmm. not only do we have the the culture's difference, Mm -hmm. but she doesn't have quite a command of the English language yet. And so sometimes she's using a word that she thinks means something. Mm -hmm. And then I say, honey, are you sure you mean that? And and Mm -hmm. then we discuss what what she was meaning. Oh, no, I meant this totally different, you know, uh, uh, word. And so part of the 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 challenge there is uh, learning the language, learning the culture, understanding in their culture, they do it this way. In American culture, we do it something differently, and they view it as something bad when we do it that way, and vice versa. And so we could uh, elaborate and actually apply that to different cultures within the United States as well. And so I, I definitely see where uh, taking the time, slowing down, checking yourself, and then um not being afraid to check that with your your other person who you're having that dialogue with saying hey this is what i understood you said is that correct and if Mm -hmm. not help me better understand right and also but it's even just kind of asking yourself because sometimes especially when you talk about differences in cultural practices sometimes Mm -hmm. what they're saying or doing is perfectly appropriate for their culture Mm -hmm. and their values And so it's even asking myself, do I need to ask about this or can mm-hmm. I just go with right. what they value and what they're wanting? Mm-hmm. And is my insistence on bringing this and checking with them a way of centering my culture, right? So it's even like opening ourselves to that kind of feedback. Right. And so the challenge that a lot of people have, and it just came to my mind just now while you were talking is, yes, I want to show empathy. Yes, I want to be um, uh, aware and cognizant of their culture and what they uh, are, are experiencing and doing right now is just fine and actually proactive and good in their culture. A lot of people may think, Dr. Manning, that, hey, um, how do you have a balance between I want to give you um, that recognition and right to continue doing what you're doing based on your culture and experiences, 
without stopping my culture and my experiences. And so what I was trying to reference is uh, help me better understand that because I'm not aware of what it means to be Vietnamese in this situation. Can you explain mm -hmm. that a little bit for me? Because in my culture, it's mm -hmm. typical that we do this. And so mm -hmm. I, I find being transparent and honest in those yes. types of questions and genuine instead of being condescending or mm -hmm. people can recognize if you're actually being genuine. So any other thoughts on how we both can maintain, mm -hmm. you talked about that beloved, you know, community. And so mm -hmm. um, how can we both maintain our rights, uh, everything else related to a specific situation? So tell us a little bit more about that. It will, but I want to kind of go back to something you said, because I actually really appreciated it. Mm -hmm. So when you described the difference in asking this question, you know, you know, from my understanding, it was this, and I can imagine that it's different and it has a different meaning or there's a different reason you're doing this. And I really want to understand there's such an openness in the way that you phrase that that's different than what often happens, which is I'm holding an idea that what you're doing is wrong. And mm -hmm. so I'm asking this with this idea that, and if I say this, you're going to get that you're doing something wrong and you're going to stop. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is part of that, like pause and reflect on why am I truly bringing this in the moment? And mm -hmm. if there is that sense of like, I'm genuinely wanting to understand and to find a way for us both to have what we need, it totally changes that, that tone that you talked mm -hmm. about. And it's so important. So some other ways in being able to address some of these differences that arise when people from different backgrounds come together, one is to recognize, well, let me, let me pause for a second. A big one, and it's one that I think we often don't do, is to have agreements about how we're going to talk about these oh, kinds yeah. of differences when they come up. And I imagine that this is an agreement you have with your wife, right? Mm -hmm. Like it might be <laughs> for me, sometimes when I'm teaching, I might say something like, you know, if you notice I'm saying something that's challenging, don't say it in front of the whole group, but like maybe suggest that I take a pause and then there's a small group work and then we can have a conversation about it because it's hard for me to get this feedback in front of the whole group. Mm -hmm. But whatever the agreement is, like, are there certain areas that are off limits? Are there certain areas that I'm not really able to talk about in the moment? Are there areas where I'm saying, you know, Han, I know that sometimes I jump in and I'm clueless about this. And if you see me going down this road, could you just stop me right there and say, hey, this is that thing you wanted me to, like, invite you to slow down and reflect on, right? right. right. So make explicit agreements about where are the areas where you're wanting support, where are the areas you're wanting um, feedback. And that's mm -hmm. one big piece. Another piece is, and this is where I find the whole concept of observations in nonviolent communication really important, is I often invite people to think about not just like whatever's happening out there in the real world, the thing that I might have said or done or the thing that you said or did, but to go layers below that, to understand that whenever somebody is stimulated by something that happened, that the stimulus is not just whatever it is that I said or did, which makes it easy for me to say, oh, you're saying I'm at fault. You're saying that all of your pain is about what I did. But to look below that and say, I wonder what this person's experiences might have been. What are some of the things that have happened to them that mm -hmm. have might have made this one instance so painful for them? And then to also think about, and what are the patterns that people from this group have that can also be a source of pain when this happens again, when this one instance happens, but it's part of this larger pattern. 
And that helps me to depersonalize it so that I can be open to the feedback, take it in, and then be working with them on changing not just this one instance, but also in how could we impact these patterns that are happening. And I find that this really helps us move away from the kind of fragility and defensiveness that we fall into, into realizing this is much bigger than just me. And it's worth having a lot of attention. Well, thank you for sharing that. that very good advice. And, and it, it just takes us uh, a moment to pause and think about it ahead of time and then establish some ground rules. For example, I have a friend of mine who loves interrupting and, and I, it, it just bugs me every time because I can barely get my thought out mm -hmm. and it, I see it as disrespectful. But when he explained, I have to do that because I have it in my mind. And if I don't say it right then and there, then I, I forget it and, and mm -hmm. I feel bad. And so we talk through, well, maybe you could jot it down or I could just let you, you know, go ahead and, and share that. And then I pick up because I have the ability to remember what I wanted to say. <laughs> and, and, and so we've come to terms, but there are times where, when we're in a heated discussion where mm -hmm. all those rules just go out the window and, and I just sit back, relax, let him, you know, <laughs> let him say what he needs to say. And then I, I come back. So that's part of the responsibility is being flexible and, and don't, don't blame too much if and when you do, you know, go outside of the boundaries and, and be flexible, but still you can bring it up and say, hey, I understand it was a heated discussion. And in the future, let's try to do this and, and maybe modify things. That a little bit, because I often talk about this in a context of dealing with race or other forms of oppression, right? And so when it's a friend and you all have equal status, that makes sense. Right. But a lot of times it's like when things are heated and especially when they're related to race, mm -hmm. that's when people fall back into those old patterns that are not working. Right. And so part of the invitation I give to people is give yourself permission to interrupt, to say, hey, let's separate out process from content in a moment. I know there's a lot of content that's going on, but right now <laughs> what's happening is we're falling back into this old pattern. And I mm -hmm. want to pause, be really mindful, intentional about what we're doing now so we don't repeat this. So sometimes I want us to feel empowered to do that kind of intervention and attend to process, even if the content gets set aside. And I also want to make sure that we don't um, prioritize process so much that we completely drop content. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to mention to everybody who's listening and or watching this podcast is mm. you and Sarah Payton have a uh, podcast. It's called Fierce Compassion, and it's bringing compassion to anti-racism. And I believe you're doing this every couple of weeks. So you come out mm -hmm. with a new podcast. And so down below, you can see the ones that are upcoming. And I mm -hmm. love seeing these ahead of time. Uh, not many podcasters, including myself, give kind of a preview of what is in store over the next couple of weeks. And so I love seeing that. So I invite everybody who's listening and watching this podcast to uh, listen to a few of these. And um, one final thing that I'll, I'll give you some time. Talk to me about, you know, how did you guys come up? Did you know that when you wrote this first book did you know ahead of time that hey we should have kind of a manual we should have something mm. that should go along with this because you might have realized that hey you know this isn't going to be easy for a lot of people and some people uh, don't know where to begin so this handbook was a great idea as I mentioned so mm. talk about um, how you came up with this idea for the handbook and, and give us a, a high level view of what this handbook does for the people that are using it. Mm -hmm. 
So this is a story that I think can be really supportive, again, especially to folks who are just coming up in, in whatever field they're in, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted to write, I've always wanted to write a book. And if you buy the book, you'll read part of why I had challenges with writing. I won't go into that right now, mm-hmm. but I never did it. And so Sarah came to me and said, hey, Roxy, I want to write a book with you. And mm-hmm. Sarah is like an amazing neuroscience educator, has a couple of books already published. And I realized that if I wrote a book with Sarah, that because she's already published, because she's a white woman, it's very likely that people will think, oh, this is Sarah's stuff, this is Sarah's mm-hmm. work, and that my voice would be decentered. And so part of my journey as a professional has been understanding some of the ways that race relations and unconscious bias plays out and impacts how people see me and value mm-hmm. the work that I do. And I told Sarah, I want to write a book with you, and I can't write a book with you until I have my own book. Mm-hmm. And so we agreed to kind of pitch both books together. We said, well, what do you want to write about? And I said, absolutely, how to combat racism. Mm-hmm. And she and I have done workshops on some of the blocks that people experience when trying to do that. So we mm-hmm. knew we wanted to write our joint book around how do we address those blocks. And so we decided to pitch both books to publishers at the same time and say, it's a, it's a it's a package deal. Right, <laughs> and most right. publishers were saying, nope, I'm not going to do this. And, you know, we don't know you. You're not your brand new author. Like, why would we take this risk? And in fact, our current publisher said, well, you know, we, we pitched a book to our team and they want to publish the workbook first. And I said, that makes no sense. Like, huh. <laughs> why would you publish a workbook first? And they're like, well, it's because Shama has a track record and we have more confidence it'll sell. And so... Again, thinking out the box, we said, okay, what if we can prove to you that people want to buy this book? And they said, okay, if you can do that, we'll we'll publish both. And so I ran a Kickstarter and I told Mm -hmm. folks, if you want to see both books happen, pre-order copies. And we Mm -hmm. sold $30,000 worth of copies in the Kickstarter. And the publisher said, okay, it's clear people want this book. So, So it happened. So a lot of it was kind of believing that people wanted to hear what I had to say. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a risk in in really saying, I am going to do this. I want to center my voice. And, and then also still having this idea that with Sarah, there's so much that she brings in integrating the neuroscience. Like she really brings in the neuroscience, even though mm-hmm. she's not a psychologist, right. um, but that's her specialty, um, helping us understand why our brains might get in the way of being able to take the actions we really want to take. And so we've really interwoven how to apply the neuroscience to our understanding of anti-racism to take actions that are effective. Well, thank you for that summary. And I should mention that both of these books, you can actually pre-order these books and they're coming out. uh, Publication date is August 29th, 2023. So it's coming up fast. All of a sudden you're going to wake up and, oh my gosh, it's here. (laughs) It's going to come up fast, just like having a baby Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden seeing their one, two, five, 10 years old, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. Time just flies when you are so busy. So um, Roxy, tell me what you love most about your job. I think it depends on which job. So when I think about my straight up clinical psychology job, Mm -hmm. what I love most is making a really tangible difference in people's lives. Like these are folks who don't know how to tell their story, don't know how to describe their disability in ways that can get them through that hoop. Social Mm -hmm. security puts up a lot of barriers to getting social Mm -hmm. security. And so I'm able to pull together all of the pieces of their lives and interview them in ways that help 
make it clear the kinds of trauma that they've experienced that might lead to them using substances, right? It used to be like, oh, if you're using substances, you don't get social security. Well, I'm using substances because it's a way of coping with like some pretty severe PTSD. So being able to respond to folks, to hear them with a lot of empathy and compassion. So they leave that assessment. People come in saying, I'm terrified. I don't want to do this. And they leave saying, that wasn't so bad. I finally talked about things I've never told anyone and I feel mm -hmm. relief. And then they get social security. And so their lives are materially better. It's just really amazing. So that's what I love about my clinical psychology job. Mm -hmm. And then the other things that I've built around <laughs> all of my different levels of experience, what I love is being able to give people hope to have a sense like you have a child and you have a child who's multiracial. I have a child who's multiracial. And I'm wanting to create a world that's better for our children, right? Where some of the experiences that probably your wife has had, that I've had, that they might not have to have, that the people that they interact with will be better equipped to know how to catch themselves when they experience racism, and that our kids will be better empowered to know, how do I speak up? How do I intervene when things happen? Mm -hmm. So that's just knowing that I'm making that difference is huge for me. It sounds like it. What personal uh, or professional goals do you have um, for the future? In other words, what personal or professional goals do you hope to achieve in your career? Oh, that's a great one. I, I mean, I feel like I'm already doing it. I just want to get better at what I'm doing, right? Mm -hmm. I want to be able to reach people and really create change. I want to help people feel more empowered in whatever it is that they're trying to do in life. And I'm also wanting to be able to reset how organizations, schools, like I started doing some of this because my kids were in school and I wanted to help schools like actually look at some of their practices that weren't actually that inclusive, right? So I want to be able to help organizations be more effective in creating inclusive spaces and just to become more effective at reaching people so that they don't collapse, that they actually show up for these conversations mm -hmm. and to support these conversations in ways that are truly effective. Yeah. Well, that sounds good. I know at the end of most of our uh, uh, podcasts, we ask a few fun questions. So I usually mm -hmm. ask this one first. Tell us something unique about yourself. <laughs> um one unique thing is that like if you ever played two thirds of the lie, I snuck into uh, a zoo in Washington, DC after hours. It's a very strange, unique thing. Wow. Why did you do that? You just wanted it was a challenge or you wanted to It was to a see challenge. Okay. I was a college student. It sounded like it would be fun to do. And I was always <laughs> a good girl. So it was part of me realizing I don't have to do the things society and everyone tells me I should do all the time. Right, right. Well, good. What is your favorite term? principle or theory and why? Mm, what an interesting question. I would say maybe the fundamental attribution error right now. Okay. Yeah, because it really helps us to understand. It, it For me, it gives us a pathway to compassion for other people mm -hmm. in a way that I might not let myself have, right? Like it's so easy to hold compassion for ourselves and to misconstrue another person's motives and understanding. But when mm -hmm. I can think about like, this is actually something that our brains do. Ah, okay. I can relax and become curious about another person. 
And it allows you to open yourself up to find out what that individual is all about now. And so one thing that a lot of people talk about, they go back to their high school reunion and they remember people a certain way 20 years later, obviously they could have changed. You could have changed. And and so the first thing that you remember is, oh my gosh, so-and-so was always this way. And then Mm -hmm. if you see that person and any behavior that would fall into that category, you almost uh, uh, believe or reify that they're the same way until you sit down and actually have a good conversation or dialogue with them. So it's interesting that you brought that up as well. So a lot of people go to their reunions and come back and say, Brad, my gosh, you've changed so much or, or, you know, I've changed so much. And so it's interesting. Mm -hmm. One other thing that I usually ask, and this is kind of a fun one, is if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Hmm. Those are two different, like they they're in such different <laughs> fields for me. So I'm going to go with the, I'm going to go with the trip one. Okay. It's interesting. I would have said project. I've got an idea for a project, but for the trip. So my family that I've built are very different. My children's grandparents were both concentration camp survivors. And my family, we're from the Caribbean, and we have people from many different ethnicities in our family lineage. And I would love to take my children, like, basically to different parts of the world to understand, like, really understand their heritage, to -hmm. understand not just this idea of, like, who they are that U.S. society gives them, but -hmm. it's like, you also come from this group of people who survived this and this group of people who, you know, came over from Ireland and the people who came over from Africa. And like, what are those different um, cultural pieces that are still part of you that we've lost connection to? Because that's one of the challenges of being Black in the United States is that a lot of our ties were cut. And Mm -hmm. so how can we reclaim some of those? Sure. No, that sounds great. That sounds wonderful. Roxy, do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology? Mm-hmm. I would say, again, it's that think outside the box. Think about what brings you alive. And psychology applies to every single facet of life. So find a thing, almost like you did, find the broadcasting and the interest in groups and bring them alive, right? Put things together that will really keep you like your passion high, rather than saying, I've got to sit in an office and listen to people all day because that's what psychologists do. Exactly, exactly. Is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I think the it's not so much that I want to go into it right now, but the other piece of advice that I would want to give people is to really think about where are you holding compassion for yourself, right? Because it's really easy as a psychologist to hold compassion for other people. That's what we're trained to do. Mm-hmm. We're really taught to like hold other people with a lot of care and that that warmth is part of what helps to create healing. Mm-hmm. But we don't turn it towards ourselves. And so to really slow down and think about, are you holding yourself with as much care as you're holding your clients? And if not, what do you need to do that? Because we can't be effective with our people that we're serving if we're not doing that for ourselves. I like that reminder. I would also extend that to just 
every human being, are you taking care of yourself as well and being mm -hmm. uh, uh, cognizant of what your needs are and then yeah. be transparent with those needs with your partners and your friends as well. So Roxy, thanks again for taking the time out of your schedule to be on this podcast. I really appreciate you sharing your journey and your advice. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun conversation. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guests or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.